This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of education in the state from margin to center. Margins Podcast. I'm your host, James E. Ford, and I am delighted to welcome in our very first guest of our very first episode, and that is the one and only Dr. Sharon Contreras, the superintendent of Guilford County Schools here in North Carolina. Dr. Contreras, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Very excited to have you. So I guess we should start by letting everybody know that this is not our first time meeting. Right. It's not. <laughs> uh, we have we're not exactly strangers. We have some familiarity. Uh, Dr. Contreras, you could say, kind of cut her teeth in education um, in my home district of Rockford, Illinois. Um, it spent some time there uh, for a while. Then my mother worked for you, um, and you know a lot of I think some of your we got to take a little credit. Some of your foundational accomplishments that made you who you are took place in Rockford. And so obviously when I found out you got hired, I was elated um, and very, very happy to have you back in proximity. So as much of my foundational work in educational equity uh, is a result of my work uh, in desegregation in Rockford, Illinois. So it is a very special place to me. Which is a whole episode in and of itself. Uh, but we will maybe we'll table that for <laughs> when I return. Um, and nevertheless, though, I just kind of want to since we know each other, I want everybody else to get the chance to become more familiar with you. So if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about your educational journey and how did you get into the field of education? Well, I feel like I've been teaching for more than 40 years, but I'm only 49 years old. But it started actually because I have uh, six older brothers and sisters uh, who used me as a pupil. So we were always playing school and I wanted to be a teacher for a long time. So I would wake the neighbors up on Saturdays and play school with them. And then uh, when I was in seventh grade, I had my first and only teacher of color, mm. uh, Mrs. Doris Hargrove, and she introduced me to uh, Langston Hughes and a novel called Durango Street, and I just wanted to be like her, and I decided uh, to be a teacher, and the next year, another teacher, Mrs. Dufferin, introduced me to Shakespeare, and it was done after that. I wanted to be an English teacher, and I pursued that relentlessly. So you knew from an early age that you wanted to be a teacher. Absolutely. And you fell in love with learning, um, some instrumental figures there. Uh, but, you know, I always find that I admire people who know early on what they want to do in life. Some folks like myself it took me a while to figure out who I wanted to be. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out who I want to be <laughs> when I grow up. Um, but you, you mentioned having siblings, right? And them using you, you using the neighbors as your pupils. Tell us a little bit more about your background and your upbringing. Tell us about your family, uh, your childhood, the sort of culture that you grew up in. Yeah, so I actually have nine brothers and sisters. Whoa. I am the seventh of ten children. 
my mother is from Aiken, South Carolina, and my father is actually um, Latino. He, his parents are from Venezuela and Puerto Rico, um, and um, they met. My father was studying for the priesthood, but then he met my mama. Like I said, they got ten children. <laughs> <laughs> so he's not a priest. He used to say he never became a priest. So, um, so they actually had eight biological children and adopted two more, two special needs children. My mother said no child should ever suffer and be without a home, and I always carried that with me. Uh, it's part of who I am. Uh, thinking about that, that I should always try to take care of children. Um, and we grow, grew up always valuing education very much. And we actually grew up desegregating, uh, helping to desegregate schools in Uniondale, Long Island. So when people think of school desegregation, they often think of schools in the South. They would never think of Long Island, New York, but uh, we were, um, the students and children on my street in Uniondale were bused to a school across town to desegregate it, which was a very interesting experience. And uh, part of why I am where I am is because uh, my parents demanded that I be placed in the gifted program even though I was being denied uh, placement uh, despite my very high grades. And that changed my trajectory. I, I believe I sit where I sit because my parents had the foresight to demand my placement in those courses. I think it's interesting when you mentioned growing up in New York and being a part of desegregation um, and it, your parents who valued education to the point that they were willing to advocate for you. Um, but they shouldn't have had to do that, right? I mean, many of the, the, you talk about being denied entry into gifted programs or accelerated programs. A lot of that is still happening today. Um, and so to hear you say that uh, you wouldn't be where you were if it wasn't for your parents' advocacy really speaks to how important education was to your family. Absolutely. And what's interesting is my parents probably would not have known if I didn't notice something in fourth or fifth grade, and that is that I had very high grades, but I was not in what was called the more able learners program. It was called MAL. And uh, students from my class were pulled out every week, but I was not. So I walked down to the gifted classroom and asked why I wasn't in the classroom. So part of this was my personality, just fundamentally who I am. And I went home and, and informed my parents that something was wrong. And they went to the school. Um, most students will not know to do that. Um, perhaps will be too quiet to do that. Uh, so we have to have educational advocates who will speak for them. Uh, and parents who will know uh, how to go to the school and demand entry and access but they should not have to. Just uh, last week during a board session, we presented data on Math 1 honors classes, and we noticed 74% of the students in Math 1 honors classes in Guilford County Schools are white, uh, although the majority of students in the district are students of color. 
This is 2018 and we still see these racial disparities. This is not to imply the white students should be removed, but certainly the, the classrooms should be more balanced and more representative of the student population, indicating there is still a fundamental problem of access in this country. Mm. Yeah, and that's just, you know, one district, but it's a, it's a macro issue. What I'm wondering from talking to you, though, is how did that little girl have the fortitude <laughs> to march herself down and demand um, something different? What kind of student were you where, <laughs> where this was what you thought to yourself? Talk to me about how you performed educationally. You know, it's interesting. I knew I had to be nine years old, but I knew it was tied to race. Um, my mother was very quiet, but my father was not. <laughs> and I knew, I recognized all the students going down to that room were white. And I knew that I helped them with their assignments. So something in my mind said, this is not right. And I was not going to tolerate it, even at nine years old. And I marched down there. In fact, my teacher told me I could not go down to the room. And so I asked her for a pass to the bathroom and she gave me the pass to the bathroom and I went down to, to that room uh, to demand access. And the teacher listened to me politely, the, the gifted teacher. Um, but that night, my parents were up at the school with my report cards and all of my classwork showing I was an A student and that they were going to allow me to be in the gifted program which they did, and uh, allow several other students uh, of color. Um, so I'm not sure how that happened, but something in my mind recognized that there was something very unfair happening in that school and that I could not allow that to happen to me. That's kind of a perfect segue into the next question, which is, I mean, you are superintendent of the third largest school district in the state of North Carolina, 72,000 children. That's a big responsibility. How does your experience as a young student going through those things, how does it influence your leadership today in this capacity? Yeah, so, you know, that experience was not unique. Um, I had other experiences uh, going through middle school and high school and then college. And then I saw the experiences of um, my peers. And I also saw what happened um, with the crack cocaine epidemic and how many of my neighbors, good kids who lived with both of their parents, working parents who ended up in jail or dead and um, were always placed in the lowest tracks that back then they had track one, two, three, four. And I always saw the students of color in track three or four, meaning they were not going to college or they uh, were disproportionately labeled as students with disabilities, learning disabled or mentally impaired. And that always stuck with me, that this was unfair and that their lives would be dramatically impacted. They would not be able to get good jobs. They were always identified as former felons. 
so they could never take care of themselves or their families. It was just a vicious, vicious cycle that I saw impacting um, them personally and the greater community. And I knew that I had to do something about that, which is why I decided to go into leadership. I know that classroom teaching is very impactful, but unless you can impact larger numbers of students and an entire system and start chipping away at the structures, uh, you're not going to impact the community at large. Uh, and I knew I had to do that. So it, it seems like even uh, in the 80s and witnessing some of the social and political context that you were starting to understand that it's larger than education, that it's bigger than merely going to and from school, that it's about systems. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I'm often asked, you know, why do these educational uh, inequities exist? It's not just about what happens in school. It's because of the, the inequities in housing, uh, in, in employment, and certainly in the criminal justice system. And until we recognize that and deal with that, uh, we're not going to see the sort of improvement that we want to see in public education. Now, certainly, we can see growth in education, but not the kind of growth we should see until we deal with uh, the problems and inequities in this, those structures uh, as well. Speaking of structures and impediments, um, you are a Latinx woman, both of which... I would argue, are uh, identities that uh, place barriers in front of you. I know what it is to be a person of color. I do not know what it is to be a woman, <laughs> right? But you're in a field that, that is overwhelmingly white with a student population that is largely uh, of color. How does your identity, um, and we could talk about both of those, how does that impact your work as a superintendent when you are tasked with leading this district? How, how do those two things work together? You know, it's remarkable that in a field that is 82% female, uh, how few uh, female superintendents there are, and there are even fewer black female superintendents, fewer Latina superintendents. In fact, in the largest 50 districts in the nation, of which Guilford County is one of the largest 50, I think we ranked number 47, I believe there are only four uh, Latina superintendents, about six African-American, and I am, I consider myself Afro-Latina. So um, it's just, it's shocking to me that in both districts where I've been uh, superintendent, I've been the first woman. And we experience the superintendency very differently than men experience the superintendency. In fact, I will never forget the day I was first appointed superintendent. I remember reading one of the blogs where someone wrote, she's a triple affirmative action threat. Wow. She's black, Latina, and a woman. Um, so, and many people just perceive you as less capable of being a CEO as, a woman in 2018. Um, 
but I don't walk around thinking every day I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm Latina. I just don't see the world in that way. I go about the work just doing it. But I am also conscious, though, that my identity my identity plays a role in how I am perceived and that many students look up to me because of um, my identity and because they never see anybody who looks like me in this role. One day uh, I was pulling into the parking lot and a teacher pulls up to the car, I roll the window down, and she's hysterical, crying, crying, and I'm trying to calm her down. And she simply said, I believe I can make it because you sit in that chair. It means a lot to people. There is not a single week since I've become a superintendent nine years ago that someone does not hug me and say, you being here means the world to us. And that is very important to me. I am always cognizant of what sitting in this chair means to others. It's a it's a big chair chair to occupy, and I you know I I don't envy I don't envy any superintendent. Um, there are multiple leadership pathways in education. You are te- you are teacher, etc., principal. What made you decide to occupy the seat of superintendent? What made you decide to do that? <laughs> well, as I said, I think that to really um, make changes, you have to attack the systems and structures. And you have to do that from the superintendent's chair. You can't do that from the other positions um, as easily or uh, be as impactful. Uh, so the, I think the best way to do that is as a superintendent. And I really, um, I'm passionate about this work. I'm passionate about children. I'm passionate about education because once you are educated, no one can take that away. They can take your money, you can lose your health. But once you know something, it cannot be unknown. Mm -hmm. It is powerful because you can fully participate in um, a democratic society once you are an educated person. And that means the world to me that every single student that goes through this system can one day participate as a full member of this democratic society. See, you're talking my talk. You're talking, <laughs> you're talking about uh, higher transcendent ideas of education. That it's more, I mean, it is about workforce development, college and career readiness, if you will, but you're speaking about some much bigger stuff, right? Being well-rounded human beings. And part of me, I mean, this is an educational equity podcast. So part of me wants to know uh, from your vantage point, given that you're uh, Afro-Latina, given that you are a woman, I know you don't walk around wearing those, but what do you think is preventing educational equity from being experienced from all students? And we're not just talking about race, we're talking about income, we're talking about ability, um, we're talking about all the different lines of differences. As a superintendent, what do you see as the thing that's preventing that from being a reality, which you just described? Yeah, as I said, I think it's the larger inequities in systems and structures in society. Um, 
like I said, the housing inequities, the economic inequities. As we know, student performance is tied to the socio, um, the economic status of the parents. Um, so that's a huge barrier for many of our students. If there's not equity in employment, we're going to see that in how students perform and how far students go. You know, if all of the uh, poorest students are placed in the, the same schools, and those schools tend to be dilapidated with uh, brand new teachers, often teachers who are underperforming, um, you're not going to see the sort of growth you can see in those students. And we also don't look at those students and ask about their knowledge and experience and culture. We constantly talk about why they are underperforming, not what they bring to the table and why they can excel. We don't see them in that way. That's a bias that um, we continue to bring to, that educators bring um, to the work uh, that we have to constantly undo and work against. Um, so there's so much, there's a funding inequity, so much that these children uh, have to overcome and that people of goodwill who say that they are about equity have to stand up and say, we just will not tolerate this for children, any child at all. And um, particularly those who claim to be allies, then send your children to school with poor children, with children of color. And, uh, you know, when we try to come up with more balanced student assignment plans, don't get out and, and fight against these plans yet. Say you're a liberal or ally. That's really important. Yeah. So uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, I think, was here recently in town. And I guess she kind of called everybody to the carpet on that very same thing, which is, you know, folks have to live their values. You can't, right. you can't keep saying uh, that you want these things, but then no, not your kids, right? Um, live the life you sing about that you talk about. Yeah. <laughs> mm, mm, okay. I like that. Uh, is that your quote or? No, it's a song. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, teach me something today. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't think I was aware of that. Live the life that you sing about. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, deficit thinking versus asset-based thinking, where we constantly look at young people and everything's about what they don't have right? Or what they don't bring to school or what they don't possess. And the truth is they do possess a lot of things that we, that always, they don't always get recognized. And you talked about culture and obviously uh, we talked about race. There are some Dr. Contreras who would say, you know, can't we just do what's best for all kids? Why do we have to talk about race? Is it possible to do this work without talking about race and culture, really? I mean, because you know as well as I do that there are some people who say, I just treat all kids the same. I don't look at race. I don't, you know, I don't get into that. It's not, teaching's not political. Why does all that matter? So from your vantage point, I think I kind of know what your answer is <laughs> going to be, but just talk to our listeners a little bit about what you think. Is it possible to do this without talking about race and culture? Well, I don't know any issue that can be resolved without naming it. You must name 
the problem. Not that race uh, is a problem, but racism is a problem. <clears throat> and uh, for folks who say, I don't see race, that we have enough data to uh, show that's not true. Uh, we have decades of research that speak to expectations of teachers and educators and how we have lower expectations of poor children, children of color, students with disabilities, English language learners. So we have to be honest about that and start dealing um, with those lower expectations. And that is true of teachers of color as well, not just white teachers. It goes across the spectrum. And unless we deal with that, we're not going to see uh, radical transformation in schools. In fact, we're not going to see any transformation or improvement in our schools at all until we name the issues, name the problems, and hold that mirror up and deal with it head on. Well, I, you certainly have been known, I think, at this point, in your, uh, in your third year, no, you've been known to name it and to declare it, call it as you see it. Is, is that fair to say? One example of that is um, in the political context where the fate of the DACA program, Deferred Action uh, for Childhood Arrivals, I, I, um, I, was, I was struck by your bravery, if I could say, and leadership, and that you, you spoke out pretty, pretty um, boldly in, in, in favor of, of, of your students, your dreamers. And I think your board went further and passed a resolution in, in favor of that. Why did you feel the need in that moment um, to speak up, given the political atmosphere, given all of the consequence that those statements have? What made you feel compelled to say something about that? You no, know, I think that, again, it goes to, I can't uh, just say I believe in justice and equity and it's in my living room or in my private cabinet with my staff. I have to live the life that I speak about uh, and live the life I sing about. Um, so for me, it was about standing on principle. And if I say that I am for all children, then I'm for all children. And I believe those children have the right to be in school and that we must stand up for them. And the other driving force is just sheer love. I believe that um, out of love, if we say we love children, then you support them, you love them unconditionally. And loving them means that uh, when someone comes for them and says we are going to harm them in any way, then you protect them as you would your own children. So much of this was driven by my sheer love of the children uh, in this district. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure children writ large, right? I, I always like to, I like to end on um, this notion of radical imagination. I'm not certain if you're familiar with it, but uh, there are some writers who have posited that movements that create change are not 
they're not born from the circumstances themselves. They're born out of people who decide and determine that they're going to imagine a reality beyond the present one, that they're going to refuse to give over the idea that another way is possible. And it, if we look back at any movement uh, of progress, that it's been because people have been willing to dream wildly and be radical in their imagination that we've, we've seen change. And so I'll ask, as you dream of another reality, and you know, particularly for education, what does your radical imagination look like? What is the what is the other idyllic possible reality that you would imagine for our kids in the future? Yeah, as I said, um, it is about their full participation in democracy, that through education, they can look at our government and the actions of government and analyze and say, does this comport with the structure, purpose, and history? of our government. They can look at the Supreme Court's opinions and dissent and say, you know, does this uh, make sense? They can fully have a democratic uh, debate uh, because they feel like they can participate fully in our society. And I think I would end with one of my absolute favorite quotes about radical hope from one of my favorite authors, Juno Diaz, who's a Dominican-American author. And he encourages us all to keep fighting um, as people of color, a people of good will, to not give up as we continue to struggle for um, equality equity in this country, and I will always continue fighting for equity in education. And he says, we have to keep fighting because otherwise there will be no future. All will be consumed. Those of us whose ancestors were owned and bred like animals know that future all too well because it is in part our past. And we know that by fighting against all odds, we who had nothing, not even our real names, transformed the universe. Our ancestors did this with very little, and we who have much more must do the same. This is the joyous destiny of our people, to bury the arc of the moral universe so deep in justice that it will never be undone. But all the fighting in the world will not help us if we do not also hope. What I'm trying to cultivate is not blind optimism, but radical hope. Radical hope is our best weapon against despair, even when despair seems justifiable. Only radical hope could have imagined people like us into existence, and I believe that it will help us create a better, more loving future for our children. What a beautiful and spine-tingling quote to end with. Dr. Contreras, superintendent of Guilford County Schools, thank you so much for joining us and for your leadership at this moment in time. It's been, it's been wonderful having you. Thank you so much. Good seeing you. Once again, I just want to say thank you to Guilford County Schools and to Dr. Sharon Contreras for making yourself available for this interview. It is very much appreciated. 
And to you, thank you for tuning in for our very first episode. We hope to continue to bring you more content that explores educational equity in the state of North Carolina. On the Margins podcast is brought to you by Filling the Gap Educational Consultants. The music is produced by my boy, Michael Major 7 Chamberlain. Now be sure to tune back in for more content. If you feel so inclined, check out my page, jamese4.net, or you can follow me on Twitter at J-E-F-O-R-D-N-C-T-O-Y. Until the next time, y'all take care.